Laura. Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Corelli. Nick Jimenez, runner. <laughs> Today, we are continuing our mini-series on the Matrix franchise with the initial conclusion to the Matrix trilogy released in November of 2003, The Matrix Revolutions. And we have a guest joining us to talk about sky fights, mech suits, and blinded heroes is devoted Revolutions fan, Sin Vikstrom. Welcome, Sin. Hi there. Nice to meet you guys. Yeah, great to have you. So, so um, you know, we like to start off by, by sort of talking about our guests' background with The Matrix just in general. Um, and then, of course, we want to get your sort of like overall thoughts and feelings on, on Revolutions. And we'll talk about that in detail as we go through the walkthrough. But what was the first time that you saw the original Matrix? Um, what was that situation for you? And what does this franchise mean to you in general? So. I was born in 89, so I wasn't really old enough to see the original film in theaters when it came out. So my first exposure was when it was released on DVD, and my brother was like, oh, you should watch this. It's really cool. Um, and, you know, I appreciated it from in the way that most kids do. It's, oh, it's cool action movie kind of stuff. But, um, and when Reloaded came out, I was in middle school, and, you know, there was in general just talk about how cool it was and how it had some weird sex scene <laughs> you guys talked about that um and it was but on top of that it was also viewed as just kind of unorthodox and by the time revolutions came out which was six months after that there was you know i recall my mom at the time reading reviews and just saying eh, it, it doesn't seem very good so we never saw it um, so my first exposure to the sequels properly was much, much later on video because I had come to this point where I was like, had watched the first one, like, oh, that was really good because, you know, I was appreciating it with a more adult mind than when I was a kid. And I thought, well, I could, you know, take a look at the sequels. I've heard they're not great, but, you know, I'm curious. And away from the initial expectations that were surrounded the release of those movies, I was, and, you know, a more adult perspective, I was better able to appreciate what they were going for in terms of the thematics and story they were trying to tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's so, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to, I'm very, I was thinking a lot about the initial reaction to this movie in 2003 mm -hmm. and watching it this morning with 2022 eyes. And like, you know, we'll get into how well it worked for me personally and everyone else, but like, it was like, you know, the idea of these being is, you know, really difficult to process or understand at the time or like, you know, being kind of confounding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were not 
easy movies. Um, and, and I don't think they were ever intended to be. Um, I think that, you know, I think they, I think the Wachowski sort of like walk backwards into that first matrix movie being so accessible. Um, because I don't think they intended for it to be as accessible as it is. Um, because, you know, I remember at the time people were like, oh, it's mind blowing. Like I've never really thought about the world like this and all of these things, but it was still, they presented it in such an accessible way. Um, that people loved it. And then these movies, they were like, okay, well, they went on that journey with us and everything was fine. So let's take that even further with these sequels um, and, and really complicate this um, and, and dig really deep into this, this world and this philosophy. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it was just a, it was a step too far. Um, or they weren't willing to do the work, the mental work, to like hook in, you know? Um, to use a term uh, used a lot in these movies. Um, but uh, yeah, Nick, Nick, do you remember seeing, so, so we come off of reloaded and I think we both felt kind of similarly where it was like the action rules, but like the story, let's wait for the second one and see how that goes. Right. So like, what was it like for you seeing this one, seeing revolutions in, in November? At the time, I remember really being excited by the novelty of, coming back to a story just like three or four months later mm -hmm. like as a kid i remember that in itself was really exciting of like oh we're just back we're just oh i remember oh yeah the ship and this and that and all that so it didn't start the way a movie i'd ever seen before started mm -hmm. and i remember being really entertained by this one and and like just at so much of the imagery i had never seen before except on like toonami yeah. as a kid yeah of like the mechs and the flying and the battles and that was just just blew me away and similar to the to reloaded as a kid i was like a lot of this is going over my head but i'm, I'm, just, I'm still having a good time <laughs> yeah yeah no and I, I felt similarly and i remember when i walked out of the theater i was like i was like well that was way better than reloaded i mean like i you know i i i, I enjoy a lot of the action in reloaded um but a lot of the exposition like you said, was like, I mean, it was like listening to a foreign language most of the time. Um, you know, it, it takes you, I think you have to watch that movie like half a dozen times before you start being able to like put together what they're talking about. Um, but with revolutions, like I, I immediately left that theater and was like, Oh, that ruled. Like I, I had a really good time with that. And I was surprised that people were saying it was worse than reloaded, that this was the worst one. Um, and I still to this day, I like, you know, just having rewatched the movie again, I was like, I, what are people talking about who think that this is the worst, the worst of all of the, the matrix sequels? Like, I just don't, I don't get it. Um, and I mean, I have my issues with it that I'm sure we'll, we'll get into, um, in the, in the walkthrough, but it's not, my issues are like meta issues. They're not issues with like the story itself, but I think that you know, the, the concept of, and obviously this is before resurrections, um, you know, the concept of killing the hero really turns people, turns a certain type of person off immediately. They're like, they killed Neo. That movie sucks. Um, and that's it, right? It's like, th that's irredeemable in their eyes. Um, and you see that happen a lot where like, you know, just I, I, I want to use a really specific example, but I but I can't because it's it's too fresh and it's spoilers. But there's a certain <laughs> show that just recently killed off a hero, the main hero of the show. And, um, you know, you'll go and you'll look at like IMDb 
And the whole season, that season, is like 9.0 or 8.5 across the board until the last episode where the hero dies. And then it's like a 3.5. And it's just like, and they're like, that was the worst ending that could ever have happened to this, to this show. How dare they? That's so disrespectful. And it's just like, or it's a story and that's the inevitable conclusion of this story. And you guys all need to like relax. Um, but, uh, I, I love this movie. I think that's a lot of fun. Um, and I've always really liked it in terms of like background. Um, there's not really, I don't have anything to add that I didn't talk about last week. Just like, um, when we covered twilight with the two breaking dawn movies being shot, you know, together as one, um, there's not a lot of like extra material to talk about with this one. Um, and, and so we kind of, we kind of just talked about everything. We talked about Aaliyah last, last week. We talked about, um, all of that stuff, you know, nine 11 happened while they were shooting this. Um, and that was like a crazy day, I guess, for everybody, um, where they like, you know, they shut down production and everything for that day. But, um, in general, you know, like nothing, nothing special happened on, on this set that didn't already happen on reloaded. So, um, I don't have any background for this. I mean, it's, I talked about it all last week. So there we go. Um, uh, Sin, do you have any thoughts on like, on losing on, I mean, I don't want to go to the ending too soon, but like that first viewing of revolutions, did you have like strong, a strong feeling about Neo's journey in the end? I personally feel Neo's journey in the first three films is just, just absolutely perfect. And the way it ends is borne out from the, from the way the journey is constructed. It's a, very fitting ending to his story and i'll get into more about that um as we go and i also think that the points about like the way why the movie was received the way it was i think you're really onto something with you know his death contributing to that and not only just that but like um reloaded ended with basically the paradigm being completely shattered with this world that we're invested in and we're invested in Neo's success and, you know, Morpheus is this cool sage who knows, you know, everything about it. And he's, you know, trying him and Neo and Trinity are trying to save the world. And then we realize, oh, wait, it was all part of a plan and they didn't really get closer to saving the world. Everything we knew is, you know, shattered. And that kind of leaves Morpheus in this movie in a place of not being that kind of all-wise, almost parental figure that he was in Reloaded in the original film. Mm-hmm. And people really didn't resonate with that because he's left with, in Revolutions, he's left kind of discombobulated, like, you know, demoralized. Very different from his character before. Mm-hmm. And people didn't resonate with that. They didn't resonate with Neo dying. And I think just, and we'll get into more of this later, but the rev- the resolution of the story with regards to the human machine war because this came out i can't remember if we had invaded iraq yet but there was definitely you know the war mentality in the american culture and this movie is a war movie but it offers a very different resolution than like than what we were kind of i guess in the mood for <laughs> in right, circa right, 2003 yeah. so a lot of factors going into why this movie didn't resonate, um, you know, when it came out. But, you know, the beauty of coming back to it now is we're free of all those constraints and can think a little more openly about it. Mm-hmm. That's wow. Yeah, I've never thought about 
kind of that you know how how vicious we were at that point in time and what we kind of demanded out of our media mm -hmm. i think that there's a part of a lot of the audience for this because you know expectations being what they are i think that a lot of people are like well they'll win the battle with the machines and then they'll take the planet back over and then we'll get to see them like on the planet and they'll clear up the sky and they'll be able to start over and you'll be like wow this is going to be great they're going to they're going to be humans on Earth again, and they're not going to have to live in caves, and it's going to be, you know, this joyous ending. And instead, this movie presents something completely different, a completely different type of, like, winning. And, um, I, yeah, and I think, I think Sin, I think you're, you're spot on. I think that's another aspect of, like, this is not the type. We, we wanted them to win by defeating the enemy, not by, like, coming to terms with them. But in reality... That's kind of how most wars are, like, quote, unquote, one, you know, um, it, it's very it's not very often that we just like fully decimate an enemy and then just was like, and now they don't exist anymore. And we can, you know, be be the winners. Um, Write it down. That's how it happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it just doesn't it doesn't really happen like that. Um, so one one aspect that I do want to I, I do want to mention before we get it into like the actual breakdown is. You know, one of the things that I noticed watching it um, this time, I watched it, you know, this morning and then I watched it um, uh, back like right before Resurrections came out. Um, and both times, the thing that I think I'm struck by, the, the thing that I think I like the least about this movie is the way that it is structured, which is that it is very episodic. Um, this movie specifically, Reloaded, I don't think has this problem as much, but Resurrections is very much like, we we have a goal and then 20 minutes later we get that goal and now we have a new goal and then 20 minutes later we get that goal and then we have another goal and, and it's but like it's also going storyline to storyline and so like the fact that you know the battle for for zion happens and it's the entirety of the battle of zion is just a 25 minute sequence in this movie um and it's just like this is the entirety of the thing. We're not going to see Neo or Trinity for like 25 minutes. We're just going to watch this entire battle happen. And then when it's over, we're going to go and we're just going to be with Neo and Trinity for a while. And then we're just going to be with Neo and Smith for a while. And it's just very like episodes of an anime to me. Um, as opposed to what I think of when I think of movie structure, which is like, well, what you'd want to do is like, mix all of these things together and sort of like go back and forth and use the um the uh 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 like the sort of like ball rolling downhill effect to like really like ramp up the the tension and the pace of your movie but this movie kind of like ramps it up and ramps it down and ramps it up and ramps it down um and structurally for me it doesn't quite work as much as I want it to but like I like all of the pieces, you know, like, it's not like I dislike any of it. It's just like, I wish structurally it, it worked together more like an orchestra than just like separate songs. If that makes sense. I think part of that comes down to the Wachowskis. Just, they go very much full bore, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially given, you know, the budget final cut on this, on these two movies. And I think part of that structural awkwardness comes from, like the trilogy is thematically like a three movement kind of symphony, but in terms of plot, it's more of a two movement with the second one being split into two parts because mm -hmm. reloaded and revolutions are basically one giant movie, mm -hmm. you know, cut down the middle. 
which is why the best way to watch them is back to back if you have the time. <laughs> but um, it does leave this kind of like you have this massive, massive battle, which is great if you can kind of just let it wash over you. But if you're the kind of person who, if you're if it's hard to get into that headspace, then you'll find yourself a bit frustrated because it just it just goes and goes and goes and you're kind of just wait for it to end before the plot starts to proceed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, like I think every Wachowski movie to even watch a Wachowski movie is they're just so willful and not unlike Morpheus of like, everyone is like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you making this decision? And the Wachowskis are like, this is the only, it's not a decision to me. Yeah, this is how we're going to do this movie. And sometimes and like and sometimes in one and you know, we're going to talk a lot about this in next week where it's like, even if I'm not enjoying what's happening, I wouldn't trade their what I want for them not making what they want to make. Sure. You know, um, and you're right. You're looking at Matrix Revolutions. You're like, I can see the version of this that works and people love. Sure. Like in my head, where where, where I'm just of... like where where you're just like you're cutting back and forth between the Battle of Zion and like early on in the battle, the Battle of Zion, and then Trinity and Neo on the ship going into like you know the, the you know talking to like the the mainframe or whatever, um mm-hmm. and and then the end of the battle with him fighting Smith in the Matrix and like cutting back and forth between those things until it like crescendos. Right. But it's like these it's a bunch of little mini crescendos, um, which are all good. But I look at like their next movie, Speed Racer, right, which has like the most incredible third act race of just like you get to the end and you're like, ah, like it's like it's <laughs> like gripping and like rising out of your seat, you know, um, and like I don't think that this movie ever reaches that height. And I kind of wish it did. But also. That's me as like a viewer wishing that it did, and like I wouldn't want to take that away from them as the creator. So I accept it for what it is. It's just personally, taste wise, I wish it was paced differently than it is. But let's get into it. Let's get into the to the breakdown. I will. I, I will. But I want to make one more point because yeah. I was like thinking, and I've never thought about this before. But in two thousand and three, in the specifically November of two thousand and three, when this came out, it was very quickly overshadowed by. Return of the King. Right. Wow. And yeah, there was two, the conclusion the, to two like cornerstone trilogies of early 2000s American culture in that year. Wow. Yeah. And one was received much differently than, <laughs> than yeah. the other. Yeah. That's and so interesting please. that both Matrix sequels were overshadowed by something else because Reloaded was completely overshadowed by Pirates of the Caribbean. And then Revolutions completely overshadowed by Return of the King. And then Resurrections got its clock cleaned a few weeks ago by Spider-Man. Yeah, true. Wow. Bad luck, man. Bad luck. <laughs> but In any event, uh, we begin moments, literal moments after The Matrix Reloaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, uh, we have to go back, listeners, to the Enter the Matrix game available <laughs> on PlayStation 2 and Xbox. Yes, good. <laughs> so, in the Enter the Matrix game, at the end of it, you are playing as the crew of the of the Logos, Ghost, Niobe, and their trusty uh, operator, Sparks. Mm. 
and uh, Niobe visits the Oracle, and she is the first to meet the new incarnation of the Oracle. Mm -hmm. That we mean, she's already transformed or been having to trade skins or whatever the hell happened over there mm -hmm. in the in the narrative, not, right. not in real life. Of course. And and uh, the Oracle is like, you're gonna have to make a choice, Niobe, to either help the one or not. And I always think, okay, whatever that means. But then when they go back to the logos, they are attacked by machines. And the final level of the game is you like either piloting the ship as Niobe or operating the gunner as ghost. And it ends with you, you blast them, you MP the machines, but the logos has been destroyed and they're on the ground. They're grounded. And they're like, well, I guess now we just wait for someone to come help us. Cut to the movie and the, I forgot the name of the ship that they're on at this point. But um, like Captain Roland and Bane and that people, right. they've picked up the, the whole the, the Trinity, the trio. Okay, call them the Trinity. That's so weird. <laughs> and now they are looking for uh, the crew of the Logos. Mm -hmm. I um before we get too into it, I think it's important to note the um, oh, I guess you would call it the intro kind of credits. It's not really a credits at this point, but you have the opening theme. And in each sequel, that opening bars is raised by one semitone to kind of show the progression of the themes in the narrative and, you know, in general ascension. Um, and then you get, you know, the zoom into the title of the movie, and then you get this nothingness and then a yellow explosion. And this kind of sets up what is hinted at in Reloaded in that the yellow code i guess the gold code as it's called tends to represent the kind of spirit of the machines of the machine world their life force that kind of thing mm -hmm. and so it starts with an explosion which i'm assuming is kind of a reference to um the in the animatrix they talk about the birth of the machines in the machine world so kind of birth of machine life and you know, this explosion just sprawls and sprawls and sprawls. And then it finally zooms in on this kind of fractal-like image, which is, I think is important to keep in mind later when Neo first lays eyes on the machine world. It's a hint of where the film is going to go. And then it zooms out, showing the city, you know, the um, city within the Matrix, kind of showing how the Matrix is built upon the, um, you know, machine code. Mm -hmm. And which ties in with you know, what the Oracle later tells Neo about why he has the ability to affect machines in the real world. So even in this opening kind of shot, before any live action footage is shown, the movie is already setting up where it's going to go thematically. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the Animatrix because like in, in the second Renaissance specifically, where you go into the machine archive, the entire room is like bathed in that golden light. Mm hmm. And it really does, yeah, it, it really does feel unified now that it's, I kind of, I don't know, see through the Matrix code and like the spirituality of the machines is so fascinating in this trilogy. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And going into the fourth one too, which I can't wait to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so they, uh, they, they're, uh, while they're looking for the logos outside, Neo and Bane, quote, are still in their comas or like unconscious uh, and Trinity's looking after them. Uh, the machines have 20 hours before they reach Zion, and uh, as all of this is going on, they get a call from Seraph, who's back in the Matrix. Meanwhile, Neo is adrift in a train station, um, alone, uh, but he meets uh, Sati, who we meet for the first time. 
uh, which is kind of cool, you know, now, now kind of seeing the, I don't know, this is, it's a, uh, again, this is like a weird way to start a movie. It, it kind of, you know, just really gets going, but it's also really quiet and small. Mm-hmm. Just the, the whole concept of like, you know, this movie, Neo just constantly meeting like programs and yeah. seeing the humanity in them and being like, mm-hmm. oh, we can't just destroy them. They're like living beings now. Like they have evolved and like they have desires and thoughts and feelings. Like these choice. Yeah, choice. These two programs love each other and made a child together that serves no other purpose than to be a their child. Um, and that is mind boggling to him because he's just like, I don't understand. Like, why would this thing why would this be a thing? But it all goes to the inevitable conclusion of this and the the fact that, you know, the end of this is not we win the war against the machines. It's that we kind of like call a truce, you know? Yeah. You know, and, and watching this, you know, and as a, I remember the criticism is like, it's so slow. Nothing's happening. But like, these are the seeds are being planted in Neo's mind mm-hmm. and his spirit of like, like you said, like these are beings. I can communicate. And it's why him being able to see the golden code at the end, it doesn't feel like the, the, the Wachowskis are just handing him the key. He's working with it and learning with it from the, the opening moments of the movie. Mm-hmm. And he's also realizing that not just their humanity themselves, he's seeing how the, the construction of their society and the perpetual state of war between their two peoples is not only bad for humans, it's bad for, you know, machines as well. It affects them. It's not good, you know, like the whole reason Sati can't exist is because of this cultural notion that, you know, programs have to have a purpose. And the Matrix, inversely to what it is for humans, it's a refuge for programs and machines without purpose. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this inherently evil thing. It serves something for them just inversely what it serves for you know humans right they they want they want freedom just as much as humans do you know like they basically created a world that they're living in and the humans want to be in their world and it's like yeah it's really interesting (laughs) yeah and it's and with absolutely no pun intended it's a much more difficult pill to swallow for general audiences than like yeah tear the system down yeah like F the machines, free will. Right, right. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think think the rejection of these sequels really does come from, I think, one, it's very heady, it's very philosophical, and that's not something that a lot of people are, like, prepared for, right, going into a movie that's supposed to be about kung fu and guns. Um, And and then I think the, the other aspect is just, like, it's the reason why the Matrix has been the original Matrix has been like co-opted by a certain type of people and the whole like red pill concept. It's just like they're not they don't want all of they don't want all of these complications. They want to see everything in black and white. And as soon as you start showing them gray tones, they check out because that's not what they want, you know. And also, the, there's this video I, I shared with you, Scott, uh, via text of uh, Bill Pope's Bill Pope being quoted about the 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 mood and situation around these sequels were made and the wachowskis were heavily influenced by stanley kubrick in a book stanley kubrick had written mm-hmm. and 
was really like, say it again, say it again. And like, there's a coldness to these movies mm-hmm. that hides the big gooey romantic heart mm-hmm. that's right underneath. But even watching this for the first time, it's like, they're not acting the way that like Jack Sparrow did last summer <laughs> of yeah. like, it's not a movie, you know, it's like, what, what, what? everyone is so dry, but it, I love it now. But at the time it was, it was a, it was a mood. Yeah. I think, I think part of that is wrapped up in this idea of Neo's kind of spiritual ascension in that he, as the movie goes on, I mean, well, as the trilogy goes on, he becomes more like less emotive, like, like his fight in this movie with Smith versus his fight with Smith in the first movie. You know, he's making grunts and faces and just generally being emotive in that. Whereas in these, you know, in in, uh, revolutions, calm, collected, very different affect. And I think it's kind of more just this progression to monk, you know, kind of one with the universe, enlightened individual versus, you know, just average guy in the first movie. Mm -hmm. It's harder for people to relate to. Totally. And I and I also think that they're pulling some strings of like he's the one and, you know, the assumption from the side of humanity is it's like, oh, he's our, you know, our our Christ, you know, like he is <laughs> our, you know, Christ figure. He's ours. And I think what Neo is realizing is that like, oh, it's not just about me. It's also about the programs. And so there's also an aspect of like him the monk like sort of performance is also him sort of like taking a turn toward becoming like a human program in a lot of ways. Right. Um, and so I think that there's that a little bit of that in, in there as well, where he's like, Oh, I'm not, I need to represent both sides in a way. Yeah. And I think that goes back to why, you know, our, our first, our conversation in the first matrix podcast of, you know, there is a supernaturalness to Keanu. Mm-hmm. Uh, a higher quality that like whereas will smith is like no i'm the most relatable person you've ever met Rel- you know i'm <laughs> yeah. your buddy like it's interesting i don't know how he would have handled these right very true um in any event sarah they meet the new oracle the oracle's like yeah it, 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 the thing you said earlier scott is so true because like after watching these movies so many times and thinking about them and it is like matrix code that i can just read now when the Oracle's like, yeah, I made a choice. You know, you really know when you already know what's going to happen and you still make the same choice. That's how you know you made the right choice. And I'm like, oh, yeah, she's talking about, yeah, I did it again. I'm always going to help you guys in every cycle of the Matrix, mm-hmm. no matter the cost, because that's just who I am. Mm-hmm. But, like, I didn't know what the hell that meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like what Sin said earlier, I really like, you know, Morpheus is a lot more doubtful than he was in Reloaded. He's like, I don't, what am I supposed to do next? Like, I don't. Yeah. If there's anything, if there's any criticism, I think I could level against the story of this film is that based on how they divided up this gigantic four hour sequel that they've made. Right. Um, the second half of it ultimately leaves both Morpheus and Trinity in a place of like not having a whole lot to do. Um, whereas like they're very heavily, they have a lot to do in reloaded, but then in revolutions, they're like Morpheus spends most of the movie, just like standing next to somebody piloting a ship, you know? Um, and it's kind of the Chewbacca of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. And then, and then Trinity is just like, 
piloting the ship for Neo and then, you know, gets iced. Um, and that's kind of all she has to do in this particular movie. Um, so I would say that's a little bit of a bummer. Like, I wish they had more to do. But also, mm-hmm. it's just a side effect of, like, creating one sequel that's four hours long that you divide into two parts, you know? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so Sarah, uh, 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 the Oracle takes Seraph or tells Seraph to take uh, Trinity and Morpheus to meet the Merovingian uh, at his. We get one last uh, underground bondage club. <laughs> <laughs> I love we get it. We get one. Like one club scene in each movie. You know, we get the famous like Dracula club in the first movie. Mm-hmm. We get the the cave party in the second one. And then we get this S&M club um in 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 this one i just i love that that's the repeating set piece in each movie <laughs> that's very important yeah it's essential oh yeah <laughs> yeah i really do you know i kind of like what sin said about this being like three symphonies or three different movements mm-hmm. um and like yeah like this whole movie made me really wistful because i'm like i i kind of know now and accept that revolutions is a very different matrix and a very different aesthetic and so all of the like green lighting and the leather and the latex i was like oh like i'm gonna miss this <laughs> next time that's kind of ties in with like because the way i tend to conceptualize the original three films is like the first one is the best one in terms of you know just pure construction mm-hmm. like craft mm-hmm. and the second one is the coolest one because it has the most of what everyone wanted to see in terms of cool matrix action stuff mm-hmm. And this one is probably for me the most emotionally resonant one. It has all of like it ties all of the thematics together into this, you know, really awesome package. Um but in regards to I guess where we're at in the plot, I would say for me the biggest difficulty with this movie is kind of how they had to awkwardly explain why the Oracle looks different. And they did a they did a good job. It's just that this movie has so much already. I almost wish they had just not bothered to explain why she looks different um you could probably get away with that nowadays given how you know people tend to like it's easier to inform your audience via social media or just you know the news cycle about these kind of things but um it's in you know different actors playing different characters these days Mm -hmm. fairly regularly but back then i understand why they felt they had to explain it just comes across a little clunky i would say Mm. sure yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Gloria Foster passing away, obviously not something that they ever planned. Um, I think that they're, I think the the idea of not explaining it um, is complicated by the sort of like racial implications of that, um, of of not explaining that this is a different person and like just not talking about it i think the racial implications of that are not great um but uh uh but you know the other aspect of it though is like and this is the part that i i actually didn't know about and was like um a pretty big fan of which is that gloria foster and mary alice actually knew each other they worked with each other on stage for like two years they were in a play together um and they reached out to mary alice when when gloria foster died to to be like, do you want to play her part? You know, as oh, like that's really cool. Yeah, and so it was. It, it it's not like they just like had auditions for like a new oracle. They specifically went to Mary Alice because of her relationship 
with Gloria Foster. And I think that's uh, really, really great. Kind of beautiful. For sure. Uh, this is this is an underrated shootout. Mm hmm. I don't. They don't talk about this one. I, I, it all works for me. The running on the on the on the ceiling, and the return of Trinity's kick, the crane kick. Yeah, it's good stuff. There's also there's like kind of like visual references to like the lobby fight as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, like like uh, like Trinity doing like cartwheels in front of like pillars and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the pillar shrapnel everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's really it's cool. And uh, we get the welcome return of the Merovingian, mm -hmm. of course. <laughs> um, man, all of his all of his dialogue with Seraph is so fascinating and layered. Uh -huh. There's definitely a lot of. Um, I know that I never played the games, but I know there's a lot of uh, you know lore <laughs> in the games <laughs> having to do with Seraph and you know the Merovingian and all the other ones. And yeah, it's it's cool that even in this third movie that's supposed to be wrapping things up, they're still hinting at the bigger world and you know the possibilities that could be in this universe. Um you know as like I think even in Reloaded it was Neo saw Seraph as gold and you know still implying later, oh there's more about this guy that you know, he has a history. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure Seraph is the first character non-animatrix that we see like bathed in that kind of gold coat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, we make they make a deal with the Merovingian. Uh, I love that. Okay, this is just this is uh, this is, uh, Trinity is the best. <laughs> so the Merovingian is like forming a new side quest for all of the two that was going to add like an hour to the movie of like bring me the eyes of the Oracle and all this stuff. And Trinity's like fuck this and like just clears the room, points the gun at his head, and it's like, we gotta go. Like, the, machi the machines are on their way. We don't have time for this. It's great. No, I oh, love and, that. And you know she's serious, because she's in love. <laughs> right. Oh, I, <laughs> thanks, I just... Thanks, Monica Bellucci. Yeah, it's, it's kind of... Um, I think people have this trouble with the Wachowskis in terms of... Because you have, I guess some would say, corny lines like that delivered with the utmost seriousness and you know if you can get on board with that you're gonna have a great time if you're if you're the person who tries to feel aloof i guess or has trouble investing in that kind of genuine i guess relation with the film you're gonna you're gonna suffer <laughs> yeah well i you know and it's it's something that we've talked a bit about um which is like the reason that i love resurrections as much as i do is largely because of how warm it feels and how the love angle in that is very warm and is very much not the way that it is in these movies where the love stuff feels a little cold. And I think it's a side effect of like, you know, we want them to have like the cool sort of like program speak and there's like not like the emotions aren't as heightened as they would. I think that it, that does a disservice to lines like that because when you, when you are, are saying a very earnest line like that, you imagine there to be a lot of like emotionality behind it, but there's not because everyone is doing this sort of like cold, aloof, like program monk kind of talk um, the, the, the way the dialogue is. And I think that that might be a side effect of like that Kubrick stuff that you were talking about, Nick of like mm -hmm. just doing the lines over and over and over and over and over again um, and losing the humanity in it. 
And I, and I think that there is a lack of that in these movies that because Lana changes the way that she directs by the time she gets around to making that fourth Matrix film, there's just a life in Resurrections, a, a, a like, I don't know, just like a humanity in it that I think is lacking in these movies, especially the sequels, that I wish that this love, the, the love stuff was stronger, like that there was a little bit more emotionality, a little bit more humanity in the performance of this stuff. Um, but I love it in Resurrection. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm yeah, trying to say. <laughs> but, but you're right. Yeah, uh, totally. No, you're right, Sin, though. This movie in particular is full of what I kept calling in my head movie lines mm -hmm. that we don't really get anymore. Like, he's pissing metal. <laughs> or, damn, woman, you really can drive. Of like, <laughs> And there's no little, like, Rocket Raccoon being like, that was stupid that you said that. You know, like, they just let it happen. Yeah. The Wachowskis uh, really enjoy their, um, and this was present in Resurrections too, like this, the kind of, I don't know, you, you could say like military stereotype kind of cliche stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, um, well, like in Resurrections, Niobe's like, oh, you're a loose cannon, I'm taking your badge, and, you yeah. know, kind of stuff. And, um, you know, in this one, you have the relationship between the commander and the kid, and it's mostly. It's mostly stereotype, but there's an earnestness there, like a heart to it that you can that still comes through that gives it that makes it more than just you know awkward cliche. Mm -hmm. You just have to be able to get into that headspace of you know being i guess fully on board with what the Wachowskis are doing mm -hmm. yeah it it's it's interesting because when we we're talking about lines like that again and i and I think it's just because I just watched it very recently, but um <laughs> Comparing this to Speed Racer, right? And there's a lot of lines like that in Speed Racer where it's just like, <laughs> um, like what you too, Jim Chimp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but but then there's like there's like um there's like uh, you're not gonna change the world from winning a race and he's like, but it's yeah. the only thing I can do and I gotta do something. And you're like, Yeah, <laughs> like you're just like <laughs> Hell yeah, you tell him speed. But like, and I don't know what the difference is. Like wh right. what, what the tonal change is that I'm like, I'm like so on board that I'm like fist pumping in Speed Racer. But then here it feels like it, there's something missing. Yeah. In, when the kid's like, Neo, I believe. Like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, it, it, I don't know what it is that's missing between those I two think, things. I think Please. it's a matter of expectation and subject matter because. Sure. The mm -hmm. original film has a lot of corny lines in it, too. Yeah. I mean, Neo's brought back to life with, you know, the kiss of love kind mm -hmm, of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just they're, they're better able to sell it as being, I guess, quote unquote, cool. And so when you get that same, I guess, brand of corniness, but juxtaposed with a different setting, a different aesthetic, like the real world and, you know, the humans versus machines battle kind of thing, removed from the, I guess, cool layer of the Matrix doesn't have the same effect and people don't respond to it the same way. Whereas Speed Racer is basically a live action cartoon. So it, you're one's better able to get on board with the cheese. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was thinking the other day about um, the song. I want to know what love is of like, could that song, if that came out today, would we even know how to react to it? 
because it's just I want to know what love is. I want you to show me, <laughs> but because of the singing and everything, it's just like this fucking rocks. And like everyone, I think. I think it was playing on New Year's Eve and everyone knew the words. And I'm like, yeah, we love this song, even though it's like really cheesy. Yeah. Yeah. I also think in general, I think these, the sequels are lacking the Joey Pants uh, uh, factor. Yeah. Um, kind of a grounding force. Yeah. Uh, you know, because like Cypher be, being who he is, right, is, is well, like he's a villain and he's great. But Joey Pants is just like the best um he's just the best in that first movie and like he's a scumbag but he's like playing it with so much humanity that i feel like there's a lack of that presence in these movies that's uh, yeah like imagining a world where cypher wasn't a bad guy Mm -hmm. and he lived to reload it in revolutions and the whole time he got to be like this is cracking crazy yeah right whatever you say boss like it's like what people say about the prequels which is like it's lacking a han solo Right. There's mm, no yeah. character on the outside being like, what the hell are you people talking about? <laughs> you know, there's not that energy. And like that, that same like Joey Pants energy is not it's missing in these sequels. Um, and I wish that it was it was here. And I don't know where it would fit. I don't know what character um, would would be able to bring that energy to these sequels. But I do miss that energy mm-hmm. not being here. I think the closest we get to that energy. um in especially this film is Smith. <laughs> sure, Smith. Surprisingly or Locke. enough, yeah. That's that's why everyone loves him in this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of, so so the they pick up Trinity or they get the train. They, Trinity and uh, Neo are reunited. Twenty four minutes into the movie, uh, and they immediately take Neo to see the Oracle, where they have their usual kind of conversation that. Uh, is leading Neo towards the inevitability of I have to return to the source. I have to go to machine city and the Oracle's like, yeah, but this is, this isn't like the other times that the matrix has done this because now we have Smith Smith could very well lead to complete annihilation in both of our worlds. And that might be worth bringing up to the machines. Mm -hmm. And yes, please. It's interesting what she says in there, a lot of people take issue with what she says because it is very like, like at the end of Reloaded, you get Neo zapping machines in the real world, seemingly by magic. And the way she explains it in this movie is um, the power of the one uh, goes from you all the way back to where it came from the source. And a lot of people don't like that because it's vague. And it's not like specifically, oh, well, you did it because this is this. Um, And this kind of ties in with, I guess, the aim the Wachowskis had for especially this movie. There's not like a literal explanation because that would dull the varying ways you could interpret why, you know, what's happening, what this means, what this stands for. It's pretty easy to kind of just say, oh, well, Neo's the one. He has Wi-Fi. He's linked to the source. The source underlies the whole machine world. He's a, he has, you know, admin privileges, so he's able to, you know, <laughs> zap him. <laughs> but that kind of technical explanation would dull a more spiritual interpretation of mm-hmm. what's happening. She also implies that she is related to the reason why Smith exists the way he does now. 
because the architect, his role is to balance the equation, to perpetuate the system. Her role, as she conceives it now, is to unbalance it. And this is an unbalance that has, you know, the presence of Smith, the way he is, is an unbalance that has not yet been seen before. And he later refers to her as mom. So it's a it's an interesting kind of allusion to, you know, where he came from, why he's doing what he's doing, and her role to play in all of this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And oh, please, Scott. One of the things that I, I really do like about the, the Smith-Neo dichotomy in these sequels is just like, I just I just really love that they are equal but opposites in sort of every aspect. Like I love that Smith is becoming more human and and but is the he is the one equivalent of programs. But that means that he's a virus and also he is becoming more human and he literally becomes human, right? Um in 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 this film and well in the last film and this film. And then you have Neo, who is becoming more like a program to the point where he is seeing, you know, Matrix code in the real world. And, and becomes blind to the physical world. Becomes blind to the physical world, like becomes much more, sees the world like a program. And, and the fact that they're sort of like crossing paths like that um, in that spiritual sense, I think is just really cool. And the fact that like, you know, it's it's a thing where Agent Smith could destroy both worlds, both the real world and the Matrix. And now Neo has to save both worlds, both the Matrix and the real world. I, I just, God, I love it. I just, I think it's so cool. But I do think that it's something that you don't appreciate the first time you see this movie. I think you you have to watch these sequels a few times to really start seeing all the plates that it's spinning, you know? Mm-hmm. And appreciating it. Like I really I've never really thought about how cool is it that you have the architect who you know, the 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 Oracle says in that scene, like he cannot see beyond choice mm-hmm. and like binary, like you do this and you do that. You need this and this. And the Oracle being like operating on for a machine, an extreme level of faith and like choice and belief mm-hmm. and the fact that those two would be the characters that are opposed and always like getting in each other's like you know yucking their yum yeah right is <laughs> it makes a lot of sense yeah uh also i want to point out so uh we get the scene where the smiths arrive to absorb everyone and i really geeked out over the quick interaction between smith and seraph where he's like, oh, we've been here before. Like, I've stopped you before. I'll stop you again. Because as I brought up last week, there's kind of a theory headcanon out there where that believes that Seraph is a previous iteration of the one. And I couldn't help but think about again that again during that scene. Yeah. Definitely. It, it's implied, regardless of specific, specifics, it's implied that, you know, he had the task of hunting him at one point when he was an agent. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, true. and again just hinting at that broader world that exists outside the films like you know seeding people's imaginations that kind of stuff definitely yeah um yeah i love that there of, are two oh, characters that are possibly previous the ones you know you have seraph and then you have um the merovingian who is also like in the last movie was strongly hinted that he was the one at some point in you know the matrix 1.0 or something well and as we learn later on in resurrections the matrix doesn't let 
programs go to waste. Mm -hmm. They will reassign existing code into new roles just to like patch it together. Right. So does, um, so, but most importantly, speaking of like, you know, seeping into the public imagination, this might be this movie's greatest contribution to pop culture after Smith absorbs the Oracle, <laughs> uh, we get Hugo Weaving's super earnest, all-time evil, maniacal laugh. Yeah. It's going full full ham, <laughs> cranking it to 11, and it's it's wonderful. <laughs> I'd like to what know how many takes of that he had, the, the Wachowski right, forced oh him God. to do. <laughs> That's, wow. <laughs> it's interesting to note how the Oracle... Like Smith can clearly see something is peculiar because the Oracle is just sitting there basically waiting for him. And, you know, he throws cookies at the wall and kind of makes an allusion to the fact that he knows something is off in that regard. But yet he can't. And a recurring theme that will ultimately pay off in the finale is that he can't help his nature. He assimilates her anyway. And using her eyes or foresight that was alluded to earlier sees an outcome and basically structures everything according to that outcome, which again, pays off beautifully in the finale. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, so we, back in the real world, they finally find the logos. And as a kid who just played the matrix under the matrix over the summer, this kind of blew my mind a little bit of them interacting with ghost and Niobe. Like, there's this part where Sparks turns on the logos and it's like, she lives. And I was like, ah, like, I feel like the only one in the theater that <laughs> like, gets why this is cool. <laughs> it's one of the first big examples of like a transmedia experiment. Mm -hmm. Like they had done like alternate reality games before. I think AI had a big one that was done with it. Oh, yeah. Um, but this one. Definitely in terms of like the Animatrix, the video games, I think even some comics, like having narrative placed in those, like the films still function fine on their own, but they're enriched by, you know, those experiences as well. Yeah. And yeah, it is like a primordial version. Like what I felt in that theater is like a primordial version of what I still don't feel right spoiling this, but like what uh, hundreds of people felt when they watched Spider-Man and a certain friend had a transmedia journey mm -hmm. and, and people were like, Oh, what? This is crazy. You know? And yeah. <laughs> like, look how far we've come in like 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. And then we move to Zion where we get some, it's just how hit me how James Cameron -y this stuff is. Oh yeah. It's, it's really funny. I remember, I remember, um, what avatar came out in 2008, 2009. Nine. Yeah. And I, came to love the sequels you know, a bit after that, maybe like 2010 or so. And I remember watching them and thinking, huh, James Cameron kind of ripped off a lot of <laughs> the, the imagery, like in terms of the mechs, the whole, you know, super macho military stuff. And Bar barking orders, you know? Yeah. And I was amazed to see that this film had done a lot of, like there was a lot of praise when Avatar came out of breaking new ground and that sort of thing. And I was amazed at how this film did a lot of that legwork back all the way back in 2003 is when it came out. So they, this was like 2002 era hardware that this was 
you know, being rendered on and all the, mm -hmm. you know, effects work. Right. And right. it's absolutely incredible to think about. Uh, Sen, I'm delighted you found yet another movie <laughs> that Avatar <laughs> ripped off. <laughs> Well, but 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 to be fair to James Cameron, there's there's a lot of this is also in Aliens. So absolutely, yeah. um, that's true. That's fair. Yeah, just the just uh, the mechs then. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, even even Ripley's in that like mech thing at the at, yeah. in the third act of of uh, Aliens when she fights sure. the queen and and like you know and not to but not to skip too far ahead, but Z's like gunner friend looks straight up like a Vasquez from aliens. Type, yeah. You know, that same true. kind of sci-fi. Yeah. yeah. I am such a sucker for everything Zion in this movie. Mm. It's just so cheesy. And like, like when, when Gina Torres comes to visit Z and she's loading up, like you got to come with us. And you know, like if it was dozer, like you would stay, I got to stay. And like just priming the audience up, trying to really mm. get you to care about everything that's happening the the conversation that the kid has with the with the captain guy it was just like yeah she said 16 i might have believed you yeah, yeah and the, the machines don't care how old i am and he's like well you got that right yeah, <laughs> and i'm just like why do we still have 18 or over laws in the real world at this point <laughs> all because because most of them came from the matrix yeah that's that true socialization yeah that's um yeah i it's interesting to talk about the way people perceive Zion in these films, because at the time of release, the Zion scenes was like, oh, the movie's boring now. This is not stuff I want to see. I want to see more cool Matrix action. <laughs> and it's interesting to think about how, as time goes on and we get further removed from those expectations that the first movie really, you know, put into the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate the Zion scene theme. Uh, scenes more i appreciate the lived in world how it was you know something different that we hadn't seen before and how most of zion is black or people of color mm. i guess implying that there are probably more dis tend to be more disillusioned with reality <laughs> than than white folks um and you know victims of systemic oppression that sort of thing mm. and i might be an overreach, but I feel in my bones that part of the reason Zion and the sequels weren't as well received was because of maybe the subconscious aspect of white audiences who mm -hmm. did not agree with that presentation of what a future for humanity may look like. Well, you definitely make a point, Sin, that it is something that ages really well. For me personally, just watching these sequels is like how many people of color there are just popular all over this movie. And like, it sounds so basic. It sounds, you know, but like, you can go weeks or months watching years, watching these big tentpole movies that don't have just like a black couple, like really given as much like importance of like, you really want Z and Link to reunite. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, like, and please. it's crazy, like, especially compared to what was the standard at the time, Lord of the Rings, where the only, right. you know, people with dark skin we see are, um, monsters, <laughs> pretty mm, much. The, the Easterlings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, and and I, and I think that it's so silly because, like, if if you know these uh, like sort of like white centric brained people could just take a step back and like look at like what the Matrix is supposed to represent, which is like all of humanity, and if all of humanity is in one city, this is what it would look like multiculturally. Yeah. You know. And it's and it's a tragedy that it's only become more politicized than mm -hmm. even in 2003, because there were no like blogs or 
anything about how oh, many people woke. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and like yeah like yeah. now there's that whole language set that we have yeah on on uh going all the way back so like we took that branch and i want to go back to like your initial uh uh point about like Please. the fact that the zion stuff is like treated as like boring and things like that i think sin brought that up for the first time um i think the racial component is a thing uh and then i all but i also think about like the matrix stuff um and how people are like that's what i'm more interested in because that's like the kung fu and all the guns and all this stuff and while that's true i look at reloaded and i actually think just aesthetically there's something missing in reloaded and revolutions when they're in the matrix um there's something missing from the way the matrix i think was represented in the first film and i granted some of it is budgetary. The fact that the Matrix then became like this cultural phenomenon. I don't like seeing a bunch of people in the Matrix all standing around wearing like name brand like fashion uh, outfits, you know, like fashion, fashion lines like Versace. They're wearing like Versace outfits. And I'm like, why? Like the first movie, they just wore like cool stuff that was like designed for the movie or found and cobbled together. And then this, they're like, all of the outfits are like designed by Versace and like all of these like fashion lines. And that takes something away from it and it makes it feel less cool because it just it just feels like well i mean like i could look at a red carpet and get a lot of this stuff you know in reality it's not necessarily like the best stuff for each character to be wearing it's more just like well versace is paying to have their clothing in this movie so and this and the the budget for this movie is astronomical and we got to make up the budget somehow so we're gonna allow versace design all these costumes and it just it bums me out a little bit I think, well, you could also say the same thing about the, you know, car chase and reloaded, how it's almost all GM. Yes. You know, Cadillac gets, gets, you know, heavy presence in that scene. hundred percent. Yes. In regards to the costumes, I, especially in this movie, it might be interesting to think about how, um, like Neo, you, I don't know if you guys made this observation in the, your analysis of reloaded, but Neo his costume in Reloaded, and especially this film, except when he's in the train station, is pretty much a priest's frock mm-hmm. outfit, you know, with extra tailing, tailoring and what have you. Mm-hmm. And the Wachowskis were so specific about it that they had a separate one for fights. They had a separate, you know, because the fabric would move in different ways. They had a separate one for, you know, just standard uh shot reverse shot dialogue scenes and they even made a special one for the fight at the end of the movie that would react a certain way with the raindrops giving a certain splatter pattern when the raindrops hit it mm-hmm. and smith he wears armani <laughs> custom tailored armani which fits into his you know kind of agent character as opposed to neo's kind of custom more religious garb mm-hmm. Um, so even within the constraints of, you know, big budget filmmaking at the time, the Wachowskis are still able to bring some specificity to what the characters are wearing, like how that informs, I guess, their role in the film. Yeah, totally. I can't stop thinking about like, like they're getting ready to meet all the captains 
and Neo and Trinity are like, where's where's Morpheus? And he's just like still in the chair, but he's like scrolling through outfits for his avatar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I just think about the scene in Reloaded where they like meet with all of like the different crews and they're all wearing like <laughs> Versace outfits, you know, and it's just it, I think that's the part of it. Like when I think about when I think about the, the Nebuchadnezzar crew all standing together in the Matrix in the first film, it's just like, yeah, they're just like wearing clothes that they think look cool. But then there's just there's something too cool, I think, mm-hmm. about the the costumes that they're wearing and reloaded and and what and if resurrections. what if when neo killed smith he won like a bunch of gold like a lot of loot <laughs> yeah and so everyone got to like the neo one the neo thing doesn't bother me because as sin pointed out like the whole like priest outfit thing i you know that makes total sense from a from a uh you know just just like a character standpoint um uh but it's it's all of the other characters it's 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 to me it's not really neo it's more like like Trinity and Morpheus's outfits. I'm just like that's this is a lot. And then like when 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 you have like the other crews in there and they're wearing like ten thousand dollar outfits too. I'm just like this is I don't know. There's just something there's something about it that is just messing with me a little bit. Um, takes me out of it. Uh, well, they're very much wearing their super comfy looking Zion outfits. Mm-hmm. I've always thought uh, when they're all having a meeting. Yeah, and I love those. Ne- <laughs> yeah, I love what we all those. wear these days. Yeah, those those are those are. <laughs> that's, everybody's wearing gym jams. It's the best. I love that. That's very very true, sin. That's very much where we're at now in our culture. <laughs> we're just dress, dress for comfort. Yeah. And uh, Neo's like, "Hey, no one's gonna like hearing this, so I'm just gonna say it. I need to borrow a ship." Um, and I, Roland's, "You're out of your goddamn mind." Is so funny to me, like. And pretty relatable, given, like, what? You want to take a ship when the machines are about to destroy, you know, humanity and we need all hands? And it it just sounds out of nowhere. It's suicide. Like, no Mm -hmm. one's been to the machine city in, what, forever? (laughs) No one's lived. No one in their right mind would give you their ship. And then Niobe's like, you can take the Logos. Exactly. Because of the conversation that she had with the Oracle back in the end of the Matrix game. Uh, Niobe gives uh, Neo and Trinity the Logos. The Logos heads off towards Machine Machine City, but first, uh, Sin, you pointed out how this was the most, um, it was like a really emotionally resonant movie, and that really came to light for me during the the scene where everyone is saying goodbye in ways that even the characters don't understand. Oh, yeah, Um, because we see, like, we've had a long time to you know neo and trinity and all those characters are such a huge part of our collective culture at this point and in a way that maybe they weren't as much in 2003 so now you watch these films and there's an even added layer of emotion to it because we care deeply about these you know characters now yeah and like on a meta level like knowing that Neo and and Morpheus will never share the same frame together, even in the next movie. It it, it was just really and like you know very kind of cold even still of, of Neo just saying like it was an honor, sir. But like you feel it because they aren't like crying and hugging each other. I mean they do hug, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Scott, what did you think of that scene? No, it's good. It's good. No, I like it. I like it a lot. Um. It is just crazy that it's happening so early in the movie. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. 
um uh, it's that that's a little crazy uh that they're just like never reunited and we've got like 90 minutes left at this point i think so uh bane aka smith woke up snuck aboard the logos quickly attacks both of them we get neo fighting bane uh which is cool because you know we're seeing neo grounded he doesn't have his super one powers and um he's he's blinded at this point this is like he gets blinded by by the 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 pipe or whatever. Yeah, the electrical thing. It's interesting to see the the way this you know fight with Bane is shot. How different it is from the scenes in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. The Wachowskis, you know, not succumbing to the urge to just you know make everything cool indiscriminately. Like this is shot much more economically. You know, more handheld, shaky cam kind of stuff. Um, no you know, fantastical moves, even lots of blood, which we don't typically see in Matrix, you know, fight scenes. Um, And uh, the only time it gets fantastical is when Neo does that duck and, you know, punch when he, you know, he says, I see you. Mm -hmm. In fact, I wouldn't be, I don't know this uh, to be true, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of the, only scenes that they undertook like where it's like oh let's just do this a few times to like really keep the awkwardness into it you know right. um, you have a feel to rehearse right exactly exactly uh because i think you're i think you're dead on i think it what yeah. what ma- it's what makes it stand out as like it's just sort of like sad you know and like there's like a desperation to it like a clawing desperation to it that you don't get in any of the matrix scenes Definitely. And it comes with some great Smith lines, how he's just so disdainful of the experience of biological life. Yeah, the rotting <laughs> meat that he's trapped Yeah, in. he just rants about it so wonder wonderfully. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> great yeah, the, Hugo Weaving impression by this guy. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I'm convinced it's the only reason he got the job is like, how good <laughs> is your Hugo Weaving impression? Um, because yeah, like you forget that you're not watching Hugo weaving that like, oh no, they just gave these lines to like some guy doing a Hugo weaving impression. (laughs) Kind of crazy. And I remember him being blinded was a real point of no return for me watching this the first time of like, oh, we're just not going to be able to, that's, that's going to last. Um, yeah, his, his skin is like, it's really gross <laughs> like the makeup <laughs> effect it's his skin's all melted there's bits of metal in there it's it's absolutely nasty yeah yeah but uh but yeah he can see the golden matrix code and then like scott said the rest of the movie is almost divided in half mm-hmm. so this is the zion part of the movie mm-hmm. we we get the loading of the mechs we get uh cap was his name captain mahoney <laughs> Like in Police Academy? Mahoney, I think. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Uh, um, So he gives his great speech about how, like, you know, we're going to fuck him up, you know, like, (laughs) get ready, boys. And you're right. I I think a lot of the mech CG uh, holds up for me. It's it's an incredible combination of, um, because back then, you know, they they had to do a lot of it practically. Mm -hmm. And pretty much any close-up that's not a full-body shot is practical mm-hmm. and like the compositing with the you know cgi backgrounds and everything it just it's from a time when 
the money could go farther and that they had more time to work on this kind of stuff mm -hmm. to add that point. finer final layer of polish that is unfortunately lacking in a lot of more modern blockbusters yeah i mean you, you hear that sentiment a lot nowadays and i don't i don't disagree with it of like why do these why do big expensive movies look like shit nowadays compared to like what we were getting even like yeah like 10 15 years ago i i mean um, i think it's i think it's a um it's the time crunch thing i think yes absolutely yeah, yeah. um they, they set a date and then they're like this is the date so figure it out you're gonna have a movie out this day you know regardless of how it looks so mm -hmm. you know better better uh <laughs> hire uh hire a, a visual effects studio that will um do this on slave wages and then it's like uh, they're not, you know, they're underpaying everybody. So then as a result, you get like something that's not as good because if you're really, really good, you're going to get a job at, at a place that's going to like actually pay their people well. And then, you know, so it's like a snowball of capitalism and garbage. <laughs> well, and it's, Fucking Matrix. Yep. <laughs> it's crazy how like, cause these days, big CGI set pieces are, you know, they sometimes originate even before the script takes final form yeah. and the script is, you know, constructed around it. So they have plenty of time to work on like the creation of the actual, you know, models, animation and textures and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But it seems like bringing everything together in the compositing stage is where everything kind of is shortchanged. As a result, you get great looking elements poorly integrated. Mm hmm. Well, I think I think that's why it's it's um, important to pick a cinematographer who wants to be hands on with the visual effects. Um, exactly. Because I think a lot of cinematographers are like, I show up on set with my camera and I shoot the stuff and then I move on to another project um, and they don't stick around for post a lot more. So any more so than like, I'm sure that they, there's some sense of approval or disapproval or some kind of note session, you know, but for the most part part when it goes to post they've moved on a lot of cinematographers because they're so job dependent and they're probably slightly over uh, underpaid for a lot of them and so they just got to keep moving like, on to the next job whereas someone like bill pope he stayed on for the entirety of post i mean that's why i think when you look at his um his filmography there's big gaps in his resume and i think that it's because he stuck through all the way through post because he wanted to be very hands-on on the visual effects and how it looked and how it affects his cinematography and the best way he wanted to be there to problem solve with them to like find the, the way to incorporate it the best into his cinematography. And I think a lot of cinematographers don't do that. Right. And even, and even in 2003, he was already Bill Pope. He, right. He wasn't like, oh, I got to get back on the next job. Right. 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 I mean, that's the reason why I think the, um, you know, you look at like, the two Spider-Man sequels that he did, right? He didn't do that for Spider-Man. And that's why the visual effects in that one look a lot more wonky than they do in Spider-Man two and three. I, and it's, it's because he was there and he was like, well, let's, well, why are we doing this in broad daylight? Or why are we doing this at night when we can do this at sunset and we can use the sun to hide some of the flaws um, in the, in the CGI and things like that. You know, he like fought, he, he finds these things and, and problem solves with the visual effects team to like create the best final product because ultimately he knows that the final product is what he's going to be judged on long term, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, but like, I, man, like this is still just so 
impressive mm-hmm. and dynamic when the machines come bursting through the walls when they finally break zion oh, it's, yeah it looks so good <laughs> and they're just moving in a swarm no it looks it looks amazing i love the kid running out with the wheelbarrow of ammo like that is there's there's a lot of tension in that and i don't i don't give a shit about this kid like i don't <laughs> i don't care about this character but in the moment i do i want him yeah. to make it because i care about zion you know the um I still would not trade. I would not put myself in any one's shoes during this whole battle because it is some of the most stressful. Like the, I, I, this has been burned into my memory. But when Z and her gunner are because she because like she has the job of they're trying to shoot the legs of the drill with the with the bazooka. Mm-hmm. And when she's like, hold my bag and Z holds on to her bag while she goes full like lateral to like get the right shot. That's just great. Like you said, like tension and like physical filmmaking. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. It's a good sequence. Yeah. It's a really, really good <laughs> sequence. It's a really good sequence on its own. Um, and I do think I think it would have been a a really good sequence if it had been intercut with later stuff as well. But but I love it as it is, you know, at the same time. And what it and what it oh please then we're gonna I was just gonna say it's tricky. I've thought about like because you know many people have done like fan edits trying to improve you know what or what they think of as improved these films. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's tricky to because George Lucas you know with Phantom Menace tried this you know intercutting during a giant battle scene with a lot of different emotional tones and it's tricky because the battle scene is incredibly intense and not only within the battle you have two separate narratives going on with you know, the hammer trying to get back to the city and the city trying to defend itself. And, you know, you got the headquarters, the people, you know, trying to shoot down the drill, the mechs, etc. And it's hard to, like, they do such a good job of juggling those things in themselves. It's hard to see how you would integrate, like, Neo basically driving quietly into that. It's, they kind of wrote themselves into a corner in those regards. And I, from that perspective, I understand why they, and also Reloaded, or Revolutions being basically part two mm-hmm. for one big movie. I understand why it has the structure it does. Mm-hmm. It's kind of clunky, but ultimately, if you're just able to let the cinema wash over you mm-hmm. and just lose yourself in it, it's it can be pretty great, especially on a big screen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I think... I'm a hundred percent. I agree a hundred percent with what with what you're saying. And when I say intercut, I do not mean like in post. I I I think that it it does go back to the script where it's like yeah. you can't just like fan edit all of this stuff together and make it good. Like it would have exactly. had to be there from the from from you know a conceptual um, standpoint. Um, I think as it stands, it's it's good as it is. I just wish it wasn't as episodic as as it feels. Um, and I think mm-hmm. the reason that, like, in my opinion, the super burly brawl and Neo getting into me, I think the movie, the high point of the movie is right now. Mm. When we're cutting back and forth between Niobe just piloting the shit out of the hammer and just whip, that's the name of the ship, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> of like just pulling these maneuvers while the gunners are like, fuck. And like Link is like, I'm going to die. I'm not going to see my wife again. And then we're cutting back to all the pieces coming together of like 
of the kid taking the mech and then Z hearing on the radio that they need someone to open the gate and her being at just the right. It just works like gangbusters. And like, and then there's nothing to counter the Neo's journey with. He's on such a solitary journey. Mm -hmm. And during the whole time of this sequence, you get some absolutely all time frames, like just beautiful compositions that are just, it's unfortunate that more people haven't aren't excited about this movie because there's just some absolutely beautiful visuals that are you know beyond comparison in this sequence alone, not even counting the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like some of the the, the imagery, the fiery war torn imagery of the mechs and the the swarms of the machines like and the, the apocalyptic wasteland mm-hmm. essentially that is yeah. this that this city that we've you know seen before has become. It's also just like so gutsy to have a sequence like this that is really far away from the matrix you know like what like yeah. the iconography that we think of as the matrix and then they make this this like war sequence in this movie this battle sequence that just doesn't really feel like the matrix at all um and they and they put it in here and it's it's fantastic um, but I think that I think that, you know, expectation wise, I think people were expecting something more akin to like um, the, Neo, the Neo Smith fight that we get later, you know, than than this. Um, and and, you know, it's because it's there's no kung fu in it, you know, like it's it's all just like bullets and machines and screaming and sweat. And it's just not what you come to expect when you are watching a matrix movie. And I think that's really cool and gutsy, but I think for a lot of people expecting more of just like cool choreographed Kung Fu and then getting this, this isn't what they signed up for. And I think that for some people that's like a pleasant thing and a surprise and like a really cool thing. But then I think for other people, it's just like, well, this isn't what I signed. I, you know, this isn't what I wanted. You know, and they haven't cut away from it for twenty minutes. He's totally, yes, absolutely. <laughs> a lot of, and it's also impressive, like because a lot of movies these days, like they have you know the big dumb battle at the end, and it just becomes kind of this this molass of just action, and it all looks the same. It's hard to, there's like not much in the way of beats in it and all this other stuff mm-hmm. and it's hard to get invested and you just kind of want it to end because <laughs> you're getting tired whereas it's crazy to look back you, on the surface you would say oh well this is the kind of er example of that kind of deal mm-hmm. when in reality there's so much creativity in this scene in this sequence like you know shot choices and um just kind of you know the scenarios these characters are facing it's always escalating it's always changing there's very clear like you know goals that the characters have and escalation of stakes and you know the drill you know becoming reoperable again later or you know that kind of stuff the opening the door it's it just keeps going and going and it's different every shot and Mm -hmm. it's it never gets boring Mm -hmm. (laughs) at least for me you know, it's funny that you mentioned molasses because, or, you know, malaise, because that is kind of the, like, what you're talking about, the, like, objective-based problem-solving. The characters are trying to do X, so they have to do this, and this leads to that. And the audience is like, well, as soon as they get the gate open, I'll feel good because they'll do it. And I think the Super Burly Brawl is an example of, like, what am I, what am I watching for a, a lot of it mm. is 
like CG characters smashing into each other. Yeah. But first. I've, I've heard that argument please. and I I probably originally thought that when I um was first exposed to these movies. I guess I've later on have come to appreciate like I guess in terms of like plot objectives, there's it's there's not much going on aside mm-hmm. from the monolithic like you know, Neo wants to defeat Smith. Right, the last part. Um but in it's more of like I guess it's supposed to symbolize more of a battle of ideas and we'll get more into that when we talk about that scene. Um For sure. But even even if even if it doesn't have you know some people might not see that going on in it. Even so, it at least still hasn't it escalates, it changes. Mm-hmm. You know, they go from, you know, fighting on the street to fighting, you know, in the air in the building and then they're flying and, and they're flying. it's and it's just keeps escalating and escalating until Neo gets smashed into the pavement and makes mm-hmm. this huge explosion. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I I but, think too. Yeah. I think you know it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the um the 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 CGI action sequences and the fact that they are now pre pre vised before a director even sets foot on a project sometimes. Um, and I think that's why they lack personality because they lack direction because they're being made by just a team of visual effects people um, who are just like, well, we know how this works. So we're just going to, we're going to slap this together and then boom, there it is. Um, and that's how you get uh, these action sequences in these big CGI movies that are lacking of any sort of like personality and stakes because it's just like, well, we just we just copy and pasted this pre-visual, pre-vised sequence into the movie. Um, and that's why, you know, like studios like Marvel, they go after directors who are like really good with character stuff because they know that that's the majority of what they're going to be directing on set are character scenes and not so much action scenes. I think they're starting to get better with that because I think they've ta- they've realized that criticism and I think they're like trying to get away from that concept now which is why I think their action sequences are getting a lot better than they were before but I think that that's where that sort of comes from is that side effect of like that constrained schedule and having to previs all of the action sequences so you have enough time to finish them before the movie comes out but that means that they pre-date a director and it's why directors like James Gunn will come into a project and be like they they he writes his scripts so that all of the action sequences have character moments in them so that they have no choice but to allow him to direct those sequences um and uh and that's how you get you know that's why the action sequences in guardians i think are some of the better ones i would agree with that too yeah Yeah. um and especially comparing like you know the marvel system with like just these films or even lord of the rings is a good example there there was just so much more time back then to really you know fine-tune these and cgi wasn't the do-all that it is today mm-hmm. and you know digital compositing techniques were more limited so there was more like it's cool watching the making of for this zion battle and adam savage worked on it and you know he has a lot to say about you know how they did this how they did that and there, it's really like, you know, every tool in, you know, the toolbox kind of filmmaking. Whereas these days, it's more pipeline, assembly line kind of oriented where 
they're heavily geared up for a specific way of doing things and whatever doesn't fit in that typically isn't used and this results in a flavor that is a bit more i guess one not one note that's not fair but a l- more limited palette versus you know the early days of cgi where it was we have to do a lot of this practically. We have to do some of this in camera. We can composite this, but we have to, you know, this and this mm-hmm. can be CGI and this is a, you know, real effect, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But before we get to the Burly Brawl, we do have some big stuff that happens in the Machine City. Uh, namely, Trinity sees the fucking sky mm-hmm. with her real natural eyes for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's such a cool, it's such a great little character moment in the midst of all of this, you know, breakneck plot pacing. For the you know for the Wachowskis to give Trinity this like moment of beauty, uh, before her violent death. Absolutely, like the the approach to the Machine City and you know Neo kind of crawling throughout it. Those are probably some of my favorite scenes in the film, just because it's just visually so stunning. Especially given how hyped up the Machine City and the machines themselves are. And, we're seeing them for the first time and it's these really crazy looking designs and, you know, set against this hellscape of a world. And, you know, there, there's these immense battlements that they're having to fly up against. And, you know, it's like, Oh God, how are they going to make it? (laughs) And then Neo, you know, whips out his power and starts blowing up the, the bombs. And it's just, it's absolutely super cool. Mm -hmm. And then he's, I'm assuming hacked. By a sentinel. I don't know what that was. I'm assuming that's kind of what it's because it shows the gold code, like the sentinel moving through him. I'm assuming it's some kind of hack or something to that effect, and takes the wind out of him and shows she's like, you know, what what can I do? How can I help? And you know, she takes him up to the sky, culminating with this, like she's never seen it before. Like the only conception she has of it is from the Matrix. Like, yeah, Plato in the cave, I guess. Exactly. It's such an, a, a beautiful moment. And it it's so melancholy because it only lasts but a moment before mm-hmm. she's plunged back into, you know, the hellscape again. <laughs> I, I know this is totally just like post-game or after whatever. I don't know what expression to use. But like the sky, the composition of the sky, as well as the sky that Sati creates at the end really reminds me a lot of the top like the aesthetic that matrix revolutions adopts mm-hmm. like the color of it and i'm just like it just feels so um deliberate now um even like trinity's death scene which i remember at the time being like this kind of sucks like this really underserves this character of like just sacrificing her to give the big hero guy more you know like no my my lady um but now this kind of feeling of like, well, they're going to meet again. This is just goodbye for now. Right. Scott, how did you feel about that? Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I hated it at the time. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it didn't it never bothered me that Neo died, but it always bothered me. The Trinity did. Um, and it definitely feels. A little cheap to me. Um, but. Now, no, now that they've made another sequel, um, and Lon, I got to like give them more of a happy ending, um, that they get to meet again, you know, in another life. I think that I, I don't mind it as much now. 
um, now that we've gotten more of the story. I think that it 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 works fine. Like rewatching the movie now, I'm like, well, she's not really dead, so it's okay. Like you know, it doesn't it doesn't bother me as much as it did at the time. I I would say that like I think part of the I mean ultimately you know we don't want to see characters we care about die <laughs> right but in in the journey of these three films I would say Trinity's death works for me if only because like in Reload in the original film she brings Neo back to life and reloaded he brings her back to life and ultimately they reach the end of their journey and revolutions and you know they're kind of as um resurrections goes on to say they're kind of like two sides of the same coin kind of deal and so by that perspective it makes sense to me that when her and neo reach the end of their journey it would result in their death and I think like because he wouldn't have made it without her. Mm-hmm. It's not like Neo single-handedly saves the day. Like she gets him to the machine world, mm-hmm. and without her, that wouldn't have been possible. And without her, he wouldn't even have been freed from the Matrix. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Um. Right. So yeah. And it is it is cool that they they both die in in this one. Is that it's not Trinity doesn't have to live a life without Neo. Like oh he's dead. He sacrificed himself. Right. It's like they both are going to the end of their journeys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually kind of already talked about this. So, like, yeah, he makes a deal with the machine. Uh, the machine's like, okay, I'm going to give you a, a login password. You can use this once. <laughs> and then you're going <laughs> to then you're gonna have to create a new one later. And uh, he goes in. The super burly brawl happens. Like Sin said, there's layers to it where it's, like, in the building and we get some great silhouettes of them fighting and the you know like that was some of my favorite part parts and then we get a moment where they're in the crater they're in the ground they're in the mud and we get a movie moment that i think about a lot in my regular life it's like something i go back to again and again and again and like watching it i don't i haven't rewatched this movie in a long time but i was like holy shit i I, this scene kind of like changed my life a little bit where (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where Agent Smith is like, you know, he's hamming it up and he's like, why, why, Mr. Anderson? Why do you persist? Why do you, you know that it's pointless? And Neo just says, because I choose to. And it's like such a simple statement, but it is kind of, it's so, it's perfect in its simplicity mm-hmm. of like, it's kind of the movie in a nutshell of like choice. I'm, I know this might not make sense. This might not exist in a binary by your, by your eyes, but. I'm choosing to do this, mm-hmm. so I'm going to. Exactly. I remember when that when the film came out, or at least um, like the discussion that ensued, that exchange was particularly derided because, like, oh, what does that mean? Like, I choose to. That doesn't mean anything. And, but you're right. The simplicity of the statement it surmises like all the the minutia, the intangible that constitute motivation. Like he's just driven to do so, mm-hmm. and in a way that cannot are cannot be articulated in language. Mm-hmm. Like Neo's purpose, as the architect explains in Reloaded, he's basically um, if the architect is the person trying to balance the system, trying to let's say maintain the temperature of everything. Neo is like the sensor. He his job is to gather 
the minutia, the intangible of the human condition and bring it back to the architect so the architect can make the matrix more palatable for people, more acceptable on a subconscious level. And that pretty much constitutes the bulk of why he's so driven. Like his job is to care about humanity, to understand, to be empathetic to the plight of you know humankind. And that's why he does what he does because he's, he's driven to, he chooses to. Mm-hmm. That's all it really needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think that there's like, you know, there's an aspect where it's like the people who say that it's, it's meaningless are people that have, I think, fully checked out at this point anyway, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and so they're not appreciating the, the, what the meaning of choice is for humanity in this film and like how choice is, is um sort of like a sign of humanity in this trilogy of like i i you know why do you do this i because i choose to like he's basically being like because i'm human because that's yeah like that's that's my humanity mm-hmm. the fact that i'm choosing to do this even though i might lose you know i'm i'm going to choose to do it because like again it's like <laughs> it's the only thing i can do and i got to do something <laughs> You know, yeah, holy shit, yeah, yeah. Um, and or, you know, it makes me a oh, place, yeah. It's so, it's so, it's just, it is. I think that there's, you know, there's, there's definitely that aspect of it, but I also think when you look at all of the films that, um, that the Wachowskis have made, I think a lot of them are dealing with their specific views on the creative process. Um, and I think that that's what's happening here too, where it's just like, you know, metatextually you could be looking at the scene and they are answering the question of like, why would you make sequels to this movie that everyone unanimously loved? You could screw it up. You could lose. Why would you do this? And it's like, because we choose to, because we can't help ourselves. We are creative people and we want to do these things and we want to tell these stories and maybe We'll fail at it, but it's all we can do when we got to do something, you know? Yeah. And not to, and, you know, not to speak too far out of my depth, but, you know, when we, you know, these movies have found such a rich new life as, as a metaphor for like, you know, trans discovery or, you know, just any, you know, like gender, and not, 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 not to take it away from, you know, specifically the trans narrative or what that means to audiences, but like, you know, the idea of it's not a choice, you know? We 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 hear fucking people on the news or people in churches or on the streets saying like, "Why are you, what what are you doing? Yeah. This doesn't make any sense. Just stop making a you know you know why are you choosing to you know but make your like, life harder a, or you know et cetera et cetera yeah, yeah whatever like, their justifications what are. But it's what I've got to do and I got to do something. Yeah yeah, and I like it it's too that- as a as a statement on like the non-binary as well, which obviously we go hella into in the next one um the whole concept of like the binary and all of that um but i think that that's that's definitely here as well absolutely and yeah i remember speaking to the trans perspective i guess i remember when like i was already a big fan of these films and i remember in my women's studies class like i would always refer to (laughs) i would refer to these films when you know talking about theory because they're really great primer on you know, the idea of systemic oppression and how, you know, the way it can manifest and, you know, the struggle against it and all these things. And I remember when Lana came out and 
subsequently again when Lily came out. That was like super cool. That was a big point of pride because like, oh, here's a public figure you can refer to, you know, someone super successful who's left a big mark on the culture, you know, that kind of thing. And say, you know, that that's 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 my people. Mm-hmm. And so whether they've I know they're both of them are very um they don't like being in the public eye. They don't they like, you know, their private lives. They are not fond of celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um but whether they like it or not, they've definitely become a symbol to, you know, I guess trans people of a certain age who grew up with these films and grew up, you know, during their coming out and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Totally. And and then another scene, I, 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 this surprised me, but I think about this scene a lot, is we return to the real world and the the machines are leaving Zion. They're not just floating like, well, we live here now. <laughs> Because um, as a kid, I'm like, they're just kind of chilling. Uh, but then the kid uh, is overcome with joy and he's like, we did it. We won. And he and he starts screaming like, Zion, it's over. The war is over. And it's such a beautiful moment. And I don't know if this moment can exist in the real world anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, please. Well, I think it's an artifact of the it's an artifact of just living with war seemingly war that will never end it's mm-hmm. a, definitely something that americans wouldn't would have trouble identifying with because we never we haven't had a, like a war on our homeland in that way where every day it's a struggle sur- for survival so really the victory the reason to celebrate the victory in revolutions is not oh we destroyed the machines it's we're going to live we don't have, to, and it's you know discussed yeah. further in in uh, resurrections. But we're going to live, and we don't have to struggle to survive anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. like that's that's a big victory. <laughs> it is, and it's like Scott said, it isn't like we killed the bad guy; they're all dead at our feet. It's it's joy, and you know, it just hit me. We're back at the caverns where like the great the greatest orgy of all time happened. <laughs> And mm-hmm. they're like, we're alive. We did it. We get to, you know, peace is what they're celebrating. And even now, knowing what I know about resurrections, like what I, it's such a beautiful little moment, but like this matters still in a post resurrections world. Like this peace means something. And yeah, it's just, and I fucking love that final shot of, of Lawrence Fishburne, like just looking up at the sky and like, you know, faith rewarded. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's cool to see his character. Like, you know, he had that humbling after reloaded, like for all the lambasting of how he doesn't have anything to do in this one, he definitely has an identifiable arc and it's paid off with that final shot of him, you know, hugging Niobe and looking at the sky and just being thankful for what Neo has done. His, uh, his last line ever as of recording is, is this real? <laughs> That's great. And it's oh. bad. Beautiful. Yeah. And then, uh, Scott, do you have anything, anything final words on Morpheus before we, uh, I, uh, no, I guess not. I mean, I just, <laughs> I do. I, I, I love that his faith has been sort of rewarded, you know, and that, um, everything that he thought would, 
come to pass with Neo comes to pass. But I also think it's interesting that it's not. He thought the purpose of the one was to defeat the machines. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead it was to basically like haggle a truce with the machines. <laughs> yeah. Um and I and I love that. And I love the way that it's paid off in the next one. Um mm-hmm. the the way that that relationship has sort of evolved since this film. I think is really cool. Um and I'm excited to talk about that. Yeah. But um yeah, no, it's cool. It's just that like the Matrix online being canon <laughs> I think really takes a lot away from his story because you know that's where he's killed off um and why he's a program in the next film um he is he is killed in the matrix online in a storyline that takes place after resurrections mm-hmm. um and it's a it's arcs. a bummer that that's how he went out was in the matrix online <laughs> yeah that that does i never played the game but i you know read about it mm-hmm. and i was never really on board with like to me the three films that's all you really need mm-hmm. it's perfect you know escalation of themes wraps up nicely and it's just a complete package mm-hmm. with just those three films so almost anything else feels extraneous to me it i mean ultimately it's whatever you want to get on board with mm-hmm. and you know if you like those storylines you can you know dig into them if you don't you don't have to yeah. And I'm just glad there's these films exist. <laughs> yeah. It, by all rights, they they shouldn't, given you know the realities of big budget studio filmmaking. Uh, totally. I, I can't wait to hear rehear Niobe's speech or her exposition about post Zion life mm-hmm. and stuff. But uh, something I will never forget is the first time I saw this movie. We get a close up of the architect's footsteps on the hill. Mm-hmm. And when you see the architect walking over that hill, my entire audience groaned. <laughs> oh wow! They're like, they're like, oh no! Like, <laughs> not you! Like, oh, we're getting ready to go home. Like, it's over. Don't. <laughs> but he's not here for a big speech. Um, please. It it's weird to. The way people deal with that character, like, because a lot of people take issue with the way he speaks, but it's it's born from his character. Mm-hmm, like right, he yeah. views things. He he. The reason he uses such weird ass language is because he is the sort of being who would choose the word very precisely to articulate a very specific meaning. Mm-hmm. He deals with words just like he deals with math, mm-hmm. and so ultimately, it stems from his character. It's just difficult for us to deal with, but by design, mm-hmm. it's not a mistake or anything right, or an attempt sure. to tell the audience that they're stupid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think this is such a rich final scene in a post-revolution or post-resurrections world. Uh, we get dialogue between the Oracle and the architect where it's like, uh, yeah, everyone who everyone who wasn't unplugged when this happened will be freed. You have my word. You know, what do you think I am, human? Which is great. It's so snide. <laughs> Very perfectly befitting the exit of his character. Totally. And we get Sati and Seraph's return. Um, and we get Sati, you know, saying, like, are we going to see him again? And it's like, I think we will. I think I think we are going to see him again. 
And yeah, I think this ending still really resonates because like, I don't think the the fourth one takes away anything. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott, what do you think about this final scene? Um, It's good, but I wish the trilogy didn't end with, like <laughs> the Oracle, the architect and Sati. Yeah. Like I wish, I wish it ended with like, like Morpheus or, or something. Like I wish it was, um, yeah, I just wish it, it ended slightly different. I mean, I don't mind the scene, but I don't like that. This mm. is the end of the trilogy personally. Um, just because yeah, we end on, we end on a scene that, it, that, that has a character that like your whole audience groaned at and like, yeah, this is where we're leaving them is with this. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's no original characters. Yeah. All from the sequels. Right, right. Well, except for the I Oracle, guess. but yeah. Yeah, definitely. I it's an it's a very bold creative choice. Mm-hmm. And I I guess it just goes to show how Neo Trinity Morpheus, etc. were players in a larger world. Mm-hmm. True. And how but ultimately like the I don't know, it's hard to describe because it's not definitely not like it's hard to imagine like I never saw the rise of Skywalker, whatever it's called. But You got it right. <laughs> right? Um, but it's hard to I know that how it ends, like the last shot or scene, and it's like, for example, it's hard to imagine a Star Wars movie or even Return of the Jedi not ending with, you know, a shot of Luke or a shot of, you know, the main character in that whatever trilogy it is mm-hmm. um whereas here yeah it's everyone from the sequel trilogy <laughs> yeah yeah i think rise of skywalker should have ended with onkar platt <laughs> in, his, in his little hut with one arm uh, yeah <laughs> that's good uh so yeah that uh, we oh this is also the only uh or the first matrix movie to not end with a rage against the machine song mm-hmm Indeed, yeah, it ends with a uh, remix of um, Don Davis's uh, mm. theme for the Big Burly Brawl mm. and Avros. Exactly, yeah, and it's it's a still holds up. It's a great jam. Um, I I want to get in some words really quick about just how beautiful of a score Don Davis put together for all these films, and absolutely, and. I guess one of my criticisms of Resurrections was how the musical component felt lacking in its contribution compared to the original films. Because, like in the first film, the music sets up, you know, the atonality, the the frighteningness of it all, like the and the, you know, he introduces the pile driver for you know those you know cool action scenes and what have you. And then, um, as the trilogy goes on and you know wraps up with Revolutions the musical identity like progresses it gets more intricate it it um it really articulates the battle between harmony and dissonance and takes on this kind of operatic quality befitting to the material like like you have um davis quoting from wagner and and uh you know when you get in the machine city and you have um like i think the choir is reciting uh Verses from the Upanishads in the Super Burly Brawl, like basically talking about, you know, the triumph over um, triumph over evil and, you know, escalation of the spirit and all this kind of stuff. 
And there's just such a richness to the composition. Like both the Matrix trilogy and Lord of the Rings have that quality of the music is there to tell a story as well, contribute to the film. And I feel like those two blockbusters were the last to really like the last franchise films to really have the musical component contributing a large amount of the story to the um to the film as well mm-hmm. no absolutely and i think it is such a rich it's something that you know a decade after watching those movies you can be like oh my god i never thought about yeah because lord of the rings even used the score as a way to explore tolkien's language and tolkien's world more of exactly yeah and yeah i, I never knew about the 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 the, 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 the Wagner stuff in the matrix it's really cool it's uh, interesting that don davis like doesn't right? have he doesn't have much of a career outside of the Matrix movies. Yeah, like, it's all I looked like him very, up the other day. Yeah, it's like he did the the this trilogy and then and like the games and stuff. But like in terms of like other movies that he's done, none of them made an impact. And I don't know if that's just I don't know what that is. I don't know if people just weren't hiring him or weren't thinking to hire him or like what the deal is. But I was just like looking at his filmography just now, and I was like. Like, I don't know there's a, any of his other scores except for these. Like, there's a chance that his post-Matrix work hasn't even come to theaters. Right. Yeah. I, If I under, remember correctly, he mostly works as an orchestrator. On oh. He has quite extensive orchestration credits, and that's one reason why you get such a orchestral richness in these uh, Matrix films, you know, it's such creative usage of different instruments to represent, you know, different oh. concepts and use of wire. He's also written an opera, if I remember right, came out several years ago. Um, That's great. But he he definitely, you know, makes a living just not like on the um, the composing side. Yeah, and and. That's not a fun job anymore, anyway, because <laughs> mostly the director says, "Oh." I have a temp track, make something like this, and it sounds like everything else. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Definitely yeah. A, a missed presence at the movie theater. But I'm I'm glad that he's working. Yeah. And and that and that like and that his work as a as a as an orchestrator paid off so richly in his composing work, especially in these movies. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll talk about it. I like Tom Tyker. I think that's how you say his name. Uh composer of Cloud Atlas. Mm. But oh yeah, was... I I watched Cloud Atlas the other day, and I was, I it was the first time I had seen it since the theater, because mm-hmm. that's you know it's, it's a long... heavy watch. <laughs> it's, it's a heavy watch, and it's a long one. You gotta you gotta strap it, indeed. In. Yeah, the one two punch. Um, and I was very impressed by the the musical quality of that film, and the Wachowskis have always had a good ear for that. Which I don't know. I'm still wrestling with Resurrections. It's hard for me to understand why it musically, at least to me anyway, seems a little more hollow or rote than their other efforts. But, you know, tomato, tomato. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to revisit it. Also, not fucking around is Michael Giacchino's uh, Speed Racer score. Oh, Ooh, that, hell yeah. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, Sin, any, any closing thoughts on the Matrix trilogy or, you know, the Matrix as a whole? Oh, I don't, I think we covered most of the broad strokes. It's, I mean, you know, there's a lot more to say about, you know, this scene or that scene or this aspect or whatever, but ultimately it's a super interesting uh, narrative, like large scale narrative that we don't 
often see in big budget filmmaking and it pays off in a way that is really cohesive and beautiful regardless of maybe some filmmaking jankiness born from you know the um what back-to-back filming schedule and how tense everything was um right ultimately you know it's a journey of neo's ascension and bringing a truce to a war and the the exploration of how like the most resonant thing for me in these films is the exploration of systems of control and like the cybernetic idea of um like cuz that's what the architect's whole thing is you know the mate like the ex- the idea of usurpation of the matrix is itself a way of keeping things under control such to perpetuate the matrix existence and it's interesting to see that kind of play out in terms of um like uh how large corp like what the oil industry recycling plastic how that was you know a big fraud essentially to try and pump up this idea of plastics being you know environmentally friendly and you know easing people's fears of consumption of plastic and how yeah it turned out to basically just be a PR measure like completely false and it, it really hints at like this notion that we we live in these days a lot more than in 2003 it hints at these this idea of of specifically tailored systems of control or narratives or cultures that exist primarily to get people to back off of the real, real issues, I guess. <laughs> right. To distract, to keep from forming, to keep from like communicating, connecting. From, from seeing the real issues, I guess, or the ways that change can actually be affected. And because the, what especially revolutions posits is that the real solution or the real goals, the goals that we should have aren't always the ones that we start out with or the thing or the ones that we think they ought to be. It's the goal isn't to destroy the machines. The goal is to end the war, to survive, to coexist. And the solution to that the so, the solution to the problem is often not the one we expect initially. It's often not the one that's intuitive. Like the solution to larger social problems. They're often more intricate and unintuitive and not very obvious. And I think that's why a lot of people emotionally connect with the first film in a way that they have more difficulty with the latter three, because it posits this idea that the solution to a social problem is not the most emotionally resonant one or not like the the one that releases the most endorphins, if that makes sense. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I I think, and especially now in 2022, the idea of victory or survival or ascension coming not from destroying the opposite of you, but making peace with it. Um, exactly. That's, that's you know, no matter who you're saying that to now in 2022, it feels like sacrilege. I don't want to connect with that. I'm not going to agree with that. We have to destroy that. We have to extinguish that. And the idea of forming a truce, forming, an al- of forming a connective whole feels really radical today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Especially please. in 2003. <laughs> I mean, when this came out, yeah. Right. It's, yeah, it's, it's like white noise. It's insane to think about 
how this came out the worst possible time in regards to its message. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Scott, closing thoughts on the trilogy, thoughts going into Resurrections. I'm just very, I'm very excited to revisit Resurrections because I do think that there's a lot of thematics that have been very deftly set up. I mean, I don't think that they knew um, that Lana was going to make Resurrections, you know, uh, 15 years later or 20, 20, almost 20 years later. But um, I think that there are aspects of it that I think are really interesting because like exactly what you're talking about, of like the, the, the truce and all of that. And then the, the fact that Resurrections is about that truce and about, you know, fuck the binary um, and how, what that means on multiple fronts, right? I mean, there's the obvious trans allegory and like gender allegory, but then there's also just the fact that like not everything's black and white, you know, like fuck the like good or bad, you know, like it's, it's also like we can work together to build something together. We don't have to be enemies. We don't have to be either or. And I think that that's, it's really cool that all of that stuff is further explored in Resurrections, and I'm really excited to get into it. Sure. Uh, Sin, this has been such a great conversation. Very honored that you all invited me. Always happy to gab about this movie and the work of the Pachowskis in general. Absolutely. It's been great having you. Yeah. And uh, we'll be back with Matrix Resurrections, but uh, it's another story for another life. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.